Welcome to Food Chat, a weekly show that's all about food production, including farming, ranching, processing, and basically all things involved in getting food from the field to your plate. Now, let's get you reconnected to your food, and here are your hosts, Greg Bloom and Chef Jackson Lamb. Talk about an uphill battle, 2,000 acres of beans and cattle. But he don't ever get rattled, he just goes till the sun goes down. Hydraulic fluid on his jeans. Welcome to Food Chat. This is Chef Jackson Lamb along with Gregory Bloom. We're the host at Food Chat where we are all about reconnecting you with your food. Yeah, hey Chef Jackson, it's great to see you in studio again. It's a beautiful day in the Mile High City. And uh, I'm excited to have uh, on the show today um, Cheyenne Meckendeffer from the U.S. Meat Export Federation. And uh, we'll ask Cheyenne to explain what that is. She'll do a better job than us. But, you know, I just wanted to say uh, I've been selling meat for over 31 years now. Right out of college was my first job working for a, actually a Japanese-owned meat plant. And I wanted to use the Japanese that I spoke just a little bit from my experience living in Japan for two years as an exchange student. I wanted to be like this international businessman. Well, when I went to Japan, Chef, little did I know that at the time they were the largest importer of U.S. beef in the world, Japan. That's, did you, did you know that? Did I you know did, that? I did not know that. Yeah. We'll ask Cheyenne if they're still number one, but I think back then it was um, Japan was number one and uh, China, maybe Korea was number two. Both very like meat-eating nations. They eat a lot of meat sure. and they buy high-quality stuff. So, uh, you know, I've been able over the three decades in the industry, Chef, um, to travel for my job selling meat, uh, beef and pork mostly. Um, and I've gone to, gosh, I'm not trying to brag. I've just been blessed, but I've gone to China, Japan, um, Colombia, Panama, London, France, Dominican Republic, Mexico, numerous times. So that's kind of kind of fun. But I want to talk about today, we'll ask Cheyenne about USMEF, U.S. Meat Export Federation. They've kind of paved the way. Yeah. So in your industry, you know, you, you've been a successful chef and you've been a sh- successful teacher. But, you know, there others kind of paved the way. You stand on, what, what are the, what's the saying? We all stand on the shoulders of those before us. That is correct. Yeah. That's so what we that's say. That's definitely me. Sure. You know, uh, and before Cheyenne comes on, you know, we just got done with a summer of county fairs, state fairs, and the 4-H activity, these kids raising their own cattle, their pigs, their lambs. It's still so great to see that alive and well in rural America. Yeah, that is cool to do. I I grew up as a kid going to the fair, showing my pigs and my projects every year. So that was a ton of fun. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's cool for rural people to get out there and do that. You know, I don't think people realize that, you know, when you're raising pigs for, for, and you're in a 4-H program, you have to write down every day all the inputs. How much did your pigs eat? How, uh, uh, how much did they eat? What did you feed them? How much did that cost you? Yeah. And then at the end of the, the summer, you have to figure out, did you make any money or lose any money when you sold the animal? Or maybe you processed it and you turned it into pork for your family. That's what we did. But anyway, it's really a business thing. They're teaching yes. you the business of raising animals. It's great. So um, anyway, I think we have our guest on. Uh, Cheyenne, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Cheyenne, thank you very much. This is uh, Chef Jackson Lamb, and I've been cooking your products for years. Um, but, you know, not everybody really knows uh, what the U.S. Meat Export Federation is all about. Can you give us a, a, an overview as to uh, what that organization does? Sure, happy to. 
Yep, we are a nonprofit trade association, and our main goal is to promote U.S. red meat abroad. So we do that in a few different ways. First and most important, I would say, is our 18 international offices. So even though our world headquarters is in Denver, that's mostly market access, accounting, operations, et cetera. So the real bread and butter of USMEF is our international offices, which are staffed with folks from that region of that country. They speak the language, they know the markets, and they, they know best how to market to consumers uh, where they live. So they really dictate the best way to get U.S. red meat out in front of our consumers, whether that's food service, retail, further processing, it really varies based on what market we're talking about. But we export to over 80, 90 countries around the world when we look at exporting beef, pork, and lamb. Shen, I've had the opportunity to visit some of your international offices, namely the ones in uh, China and in uh, Japan, and see your staff and just the excellent events they put on and the things they do to promote U.S. Uh, red meat, namely pork and beef. Uh, it's just amazing the, the coordination that takes place to, to do that. I wanted to ask you, Shan, uh, why, what are the best markets right now in the world for U.S. red meats? So if we look at top value and volume markets for beef and pork, they're, they're in a different order depending on the species you're talking about. But in general, they're the same five, and that would be Korea, China, Hong Kong, Japan, Mexico, and Canada. And what is it, Shan, about U.S. beef and U.S. pork that makes it so desirable for these countries that they would want to import it? Well, the calling card of U.S. red meat abroad has, and what we have been known and recognized for for decades and decades that we've been exporting, is food safety and quality. The U.S. regulatory system for producing a safe product is known throughout the world. It's not in question. And that's something that, you know, our exports were, were really built on. And quality is a big part of that as well. Our grain finishing model uh, for both beef and uh, pork, you know, beef especially because a lot of our beef competition around the world is from grain finish or grass finishing, uh, you know, that quality, that nice white fat, uh, the marbling, you know, which gives those cuts and those chops um, that excellent flavor, you know, that chefs and consumers love around the world. That's also something that's in high demand of our product. And again, that's, that's our grain finishing model is really what we're known for. And more so and more so, you know, we're, we're touting our other benefits in regards to animal welfare and sustainability as well. I've had the opportunity to uh, uh, go to Asia several times, Shane, and, and talk to the international buyers, not necessarily the ones buying from me, but just buying uh, large amounts of U.S. beef and pork, and especially with the beef, you know, when you ask what they're looking for, they they smile and they say, you know, marbling or USDA high choice and prime. You know, they just love the the grain finish taste, especially at food service. You know, but retail too. But you know, those those restaurant chefs want to pull that that Japanese or that Korean consumer into their store and give them just an outrageous high quality eating experience, which is available from you know U.S. fed beef, but not available from beef imported from maybe Central or South American countries. Yeah. So. In fact, that's actually actually what I wanted to talk about were, uh, who's the competition out there? I, I know that we put out a lot of product and some of the numbers you shared with us are tremendous. Who are some of the other big beef producers around the world? So on the grain finish side, Canada obviously produces and exports some grain finished beef. Uh, they obviously just have you know quite a bit smaller industry than us. 
Australia is predominantly a grass finished supplier, but m- more so each year they are producing a higher and producing and exporting a larger percent of percentage of grass finished beef. So they are also seeing those opportunities and they're closer to the Asian markets than we are. And they're starting to see that demand for, for grain finished, even though predominantly they're known as a grass finished supplier. And then the South Americans, obviously, Brazil, Uruguay, Argentina are the big beef suppliers. But again, you will see some grain finished product coming out of those markets, uh, primarily for the European market. And a lot of the other grain finishing they do, you know, is for the domestic market in the case of Brazil, but they would be the other predominant grass finished suppliers uh, around the world. And then there is some Indian water buffalo exported um, that is coated the same as beef, even though we consider it to be uh, quite a different product. But that would be going to, you know, more of the price sensitive markets um, in that region of the world. Right. Shane, tell us um, a little bit about what you what you specifically do at the U.S. Meat Export Federation. What, do you, what is your day-to-day and week-to-week job responsibility look like? So I work in export services, and that primarily includes three components. So first and foremost is export services. So we, we have a varied membership uh, that includes packers, processors, traders, which are companies that don't produce the meat themselves, but they'll buy it from a packer and export it. Uh, traders are a huge component of the export business. Uh, cold storages, logistics companies, uh, they would all be anyone really involved at scale in the meat export business would be members of ours. And we make sure that they are apprised of changes to the FSIS export library, which is essentially the Bible of, you know, all the regulatory export requirements for the countries we ship to. It's written in government speak. It's hard to know what's been updated. It's hard to interpret sometimes what it's trying to say. So we, we are experts in trying to communicate those changes to our industry. And if we don't know what the changes are, we work very closely with USDA in Washington, D.C. To, to keep apprised of those changes. And then if they have issues while exporting, say it gets stuck at a foreign port of entry due to labeling, due to documentation issues, due to a microbiological violation, we work very closely with our embassies around the world to try and get those loads released if possible. And then we also work on market access. So, you know, there are a handful of countries that are still totally closed to U.S. beef, pork, or lamb for various reasons. It could be animal health reasons, uh, higher level political reasons. So we work closely with our other industry associations in this country to try and open markets or remove burdensome barriers. Say maybe they don't allow over 30 month cattle uh, due to BSC concerns. Uh, But we also work on trade nuisances like uh, onerous bilingual labeling requirements that a country may have that limits the number of suppliers that that want to mess with shipping there. And then we're also a technical resource for our international offices. Most of the folks we hire don't have a meat background. They don't necessarily have an ag background because we've hired them for their exceptional marketing skills. And we make sure that everything that we're communicating is accurate and representative of what the U.S. meat industry does um, throughout the entire supply chain. You know, I've looked at those tread regulations before, Cheyenne, and there's just no way I'm going to get through them and understand them. It's onerous. It's it's too much detail, <laughs> too much lingo. I don't understand. So I'm so glad that uh, your office and your 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 you know your job exists to help 
uh, big and small companies exporting uh, because, uh, you know, that stuff, I think it could, some of it is even a trade barrier, but just all the lingo in there that you have to understand to, to be able to, to import or export to some countries. Yeah, absolutely. I, exporting is exciting and it's, and it's sexy, as people have told me. And I think, you know, a lot of these companies, they look at it and they see the opportunities, but it can definitely get daunting once you dig into the regulations and start seeing, you know, what do I need to do on this side to get an export certificate? And what do I need to do on that side if that, you know, foreign government stops my load for some reason? So anything we can do to keep products flowing benefits, you know, the entire supply chain by bringing that export value back all the way down. Greg tells me that you started this group called Women. And first of all, I love the name. Can you tell us about that? How did you, uh, how did it start? And what are the goals and the missions of WMIN? Yeah, thanks. I, I can't take credit for coming up with that acronym, so I give kudos to my colleague on that. But it stands for the Women's Meat Industry Network, or WOMEN, as you called it. Um, and we started as a group of women who are passionate about working in the meat industry and really have a desire to help recruit and retain female talent in the industry. As we see, that has huge benefits not only for the employees, but the employers as well as, you know, diversity, especially at the executive levels, has been shown to make companies more profitable. But we also just think it's a great industry to be in. Uh, There's tons of different sectors. There's lots of opportunities. And we see this as an opportunity to really tout those benefits while working to address some of the the hurdles uh, that we see from either entering or, you know, moving up uh, in in your various sectors. Speaking of the hurdles, uh, Shan, I'd like you to talk about those. Now, the ones that I've seen, having sold meat now for 30 years and going to industry meetings and, you know, being on the road with companies trying to sell meat, and what I have witnessed is that, you know, it's it's predominantly a, a male industry. Uh, uh, I don't know historically, you know, back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, if women just didn't think about going into working in meat plants or food production, but it's changed a lot, gosh, since back then and even since I started uh, in the industry in the early 90s. But what, what are some of the hurdles that you would, you would see or have experienced for women? And I'll just speak of the one I've seen the most is that a woman might get a job in a, in a company and be like, you know, there's few women in a small, I'm talking about like a small meat company of like less than like 50 people, a small USDA plant. And there might be one or two women in there that are involved in, um, you know, the sales side of it. Because uh, t- t- traditionally on the sales side of meat, you you, it is more, you see more men than women. Um, hopefully you see that change over the years. But uh, a woman can get in that small little company, and the culture of that company just isn't so great about mentoring them and showing them the big picture and send them to industry conferences and letting them like rub shoulders with their peers. And so they get discouraged, and they quit. And they go work in another industry, and they take that awesome talent and enthusiasm and those sharp people skills and everything they learned in college. They might have a meat science degree from A&M or CSU or Kansas State or one of these great schools, meat science, but they just, just don't like the culture, and they quit. And I just get so sick when I see that. But what about other hurdles have you seen? No, I agree. And, you know, you mentioned the schools, which is not our, our only outlet for talent, but it is, it is a huge, you know, funnel for talent in this country. We have the best meat science programs in the world, and people come from all over the world to these, to these university programs. I mean, I went through one myself at Caro State. And if even back, you know, when I was in school, um, much longer than a decade ago, but even now, it seems a good 
majority of the students are are women. But then you get out in the industry and you say, well, I don't know where they went. You know, maybe they went to R&D is very common. Um, You know, you mentioned some of the other positions. But if you look at things like operations, for example, really minimal representation. And then again, if you get to the top um, senior leadership executive levels, there's just not a lot of representation there. And so I think entry into some of these different areas within the food production system, like I said, operations isn't happening, but also there's a gap, you know, they're getting to middle management and then we're not seeing that, that next step up to the ladder, you know, to the executive or senior leadership level. And so that's why, especially through one of our priorities, which is mentoring, is trying to build you know, that confidence, those skill sets in that community to address some of these gaps we see. And you mentioned the small plants, and I've heard from multiple people that said exactly the same thing. They said, hey, I'm one of two women, three women at this small plant I'm working at. And they felt like they just didn't have a community. They didn't have anyone to reach out to and say, hey, you know, do you have any ideas how to address this or whatnot? And then we're hoping to be that larger community for them to kind of build upon and hopefully like you said we can keep that exceptional talent within the meat industry and when I say meat industry you know I think we we think of primary industry which would be packer processing but we've specifically built our board to represent all the sectors so we have representation from retail food service academia and allied which can include packaging suppliers chemical suppliers spice suppliers whatever it may be because we really want to bring all these different sectors that represent the larger meat industry together and, and give them that platform and that community. Cheyenne, that sounds great. You know, I, uh, I'm a professor over at Metropolitan State University uh, in the School of Hospitality. I've got several women that are in our food service management program. How can I get them involved with uh, WMIN? So due to our very kind sponsors, our membership is currently and hopefully remains free. So you can head over to women.org, so the acronym standing for Women's Meat Industry Network.org, and sign up for free. That gets you on our mailing list. You can check out more of our priorities and who we are and what we do on the website. And follow us on social media. LinkedIn is the primary source right now, and we're... We have lots of virtual and in-person offerings to, to get together and start start meeting other folks. Sounds like a great networking opportunity. Cheyenne, what, Absolutely. what advice would you have for uh, any young women listening to this show that are in high school or um, they're still on the farm or the ranch and they're thinking about going into the food industry for a career, maybe, but they're not sure. There's a lot of things they could do. Maybe, maybe they don't really want to do production side, uh, but that's all they know because that's what they see every day and live. Uh, what, what kind of opportunities would would be there for women in in high school and even in college? What if they're at uh, you know a meat school or an ag school or one of the uh, big ag schools in their state? Uh, maybe it's the land grant university, and they're gosh, there's so many things they could do, but you know they're not really that familiar with the side of the industry that you've seen, which is the the food production side, they're just familiar. So I guess my question is, you know, what what opportunities are there for, for women in, in the, not just ag, but the food industry that you've seen? Yeah, great question. So last year, I was the food systems representative for a career workshop at the State of FFA convention here in Colorado. And 
out of probably 80 plus students, not one student chose that area as an interest for them to explore. So I think the organizers thought I'd be offended that no one wanted to come talk to me, which I wasn't. I was just uh, shocked that this subset of our youth, including ag youth, had no interest in food. And maybe it's just a semantics issue of calling it food systems versus something else. But it really makes me wonder what students think about food and the food industry at large as they start choosing their studies or careers to follow. I mean, I started working in my family's slaughter plant when I was seven, and I was raised on ranches before that. So I've been involved in food production my entire life, and everyone involved in agriculture is involved in the food industry, whether you think of it that way or want to call it that name. Um, but I think there's definitely a subset that don't think about, you know, how all these food products get to our table. So um, I also used to be a food safety and animal welfare auditor, and I prim primarily audited meat and poultry plants, but I also audited bourbon distilleries, refried bean plants, lettuce plants, fish fluff plants, cheesecake shops, really anything you could think of. Um, and when you start thinking of everything that goes from field to plate to make all these different food products, and all the available roles and opportunities it opens, food safety and quality assurance, research and development, logistics, sales, operations, maintenance, you name it. I mean, the world is really your oyster when it comes to food and career opportunities, whether you want to work in a lab, making sure that product is safe, or you want to travel the world selling it. I mean, to me, this is just really an endless um, industry to explore, and there's tons of different, you know, educational opportunities to get there, whether it's a trade school or whether a four-year program, but there's food safety, there's meat science, I mean, all the way down the gamut um, that you can work through to, to really get a job any, in any of those sectors. Cheyenne, you, you paint a very positive picture of, of what goes on out there. But, you know, when we see the news on a daily basis, the egg industry is under fire. Um, how does the ag industry best stand up to those trying to stop ag production, blaming global warming? Well, that's a loaded question, but I'll try and uh, be as succinct as I can. You know, this sounds really cliche, and everyone says it, but we really do have a great story to tell already. We've just, we've really sucked at telling it for multiple reasons, and probably not least of which because it's a complicated topic. You know, you start talking about the specifics of what sustainability is or means, um, how carbon sequestration works, et cetera, and it starts to get really complicated and it starts to get very muddy pretty quickly. You know, in my work in the global space over the past few years, I've really seen a ramp up of global groups, UN conferences, et cetera, emerge with the goal of totally removing animal protein off the plate in the name of human and planetary health. And we're not talking just meatless Mondays here. We're talking a complete removal of meat, poultry, and dairy totally off your plate. And it's crazy, frankly, because the science and the data are in our corner. When looking at the bioavailability of nutrients to benefit your body in animal protein versus plant protein, there's no comparison, and there's not a straight-across substitute. And we're natural. You know, the amazing nutrition of animal protein is just there, whether it's ground beef or pork chop, whatever it may be. And we don't need 30 ingredients to make it that way. And, you know, lastly, just, you know, talking about the way we produce food in this country, we embrace technology, innovation, and productivity. 
the size of our farms, ranches, feedlots are made to look bad on the global stage, when in fact I'd argue we're the most sustainable in terms of total ag of anyone in the world. And that's because we continue to produce more with less, less water, less land, less inputs, less emissions. And to me, that's a really forward-looking model of producing food to not only feed a growing world population, address food security, which is a huge issue now, including in this country, but also in reducing our emissions. And, you know, we should be taking credit for, for all the benefits that we've done with that. And then I also mentioned deforestation because that's a huge topic globally. We don't talk about it here in the U.S. because it's not an issue, um, but it's something that red meat gets under fire for, uh, especially across the pond in Europe. And it's not an issue here. In fact, our forest lands have remained stable or even grown for the past few decades. So again, I think these are all things we're not necessarily talking about here, but we're seeing more global pressure, uh, especially across the pond with our European neighbors. And we have really, really great points to push back against that. Right. Shan, we just have about a minute left, and I want to just ask you one more question to close. Uh, regarding the me our message is not getting out, and we're not real great about telling our story, I have um, observed that the meat industry side, uh, the companies that process meat and uh, sell meat, they're, they're, they're trying to fight back in the meat associations. But, you know, on the production side, the farmers and the ranchers, um, why why aren't there more farmers and ranchers on social media and and their associations uh, producing content and you know on the social media platforms i see a few but i don't it's just overwhelming the the opposition so why do you think that is and could what do you think we could do to change it i i mean culturally as someone that lives in rural colorado a beef producer myself talking to other beef producers i think there's just you know, a lot of talk that, well, it's just a fluffy word. It doesn't mean anything, and it's not going to impact us, and that's not the case. It's something that, you know, has inundated our lives globally and is really coming. It's coming at our doorstep. And so I think, but it's, like I said, a complicated topic. So I think our associations really have a role to educate our producers and just say, these are all things you're doing anyway. You don't, you don't even have to change anything you're doing, but these are ways to talk about in a positive light, whether it is on social media or just conversations you're having with folks on a plane or whatnot. Shane, thank you for coming on the show today. I'm so sorry we're already out of time, but uh, it was great to have you on. We'll have you back future dates and um, travel safe. And um, just re really appreciate uh, you coming on and sharing with us today. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. I enjoyed it. Cheyenne, thank you very much. Hope to see you soon. Sounds good. Thanks. Okay, Shan, we're done recording now. Thank you for coming on. Sorry that uh, it goes so fast. It doesn't really give you a lot of ch chance to talk and embellish, but it was, it was good. Thank you. Today's show is brought to you by RanchFreshMeats.com. At Ranch Fresh Meats, we have found the best quality of bison, beef, chicken, pork, and more. And you can get it all in one box from one locally owned Colorado company. Go to ranchfreshmeats.com. Sign up for the weekly newsletter and get a chance to win a free case of Beeler's Bacon. Ranchfreshmeats.com. It's delivered online just like everything else in this world. Here's to the farmer that plants the fields in the spring. The turn from green to that harvest honey Pull one up for the banker downtown The 
The views and opinions expressed on KLZ 560 are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect those of Crawford Broadcasting, the station, management, employees, associates, or advertisers. KLZ 560 is a Crawford Broadcasting God and Country station.